So imagine you feel perfect, but you're going to go to the medicine cabinet and take your allergy medicines. You know, us as humans, kind of the way we look at medication is if I get the fever, I'll take the Tylenol. And if I get the itchy eyes and the runny nose, I'll take my allergy medicine. That's exa exactly how it doesn't work. Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari. You can see it. I mean, it's crystal clear. I think it's going to really revolutionize things. Which is a big game changer. All information discussed or provided by Jonathan Bakhtari, MD, Dr. Bakhtari, and or his affiliates and guests are for educational purposes only. The information discussed and provided is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical concern or condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of any information discussed or provided by Dr. Bakhtari or his affiliates and guests. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call 911 immediately. Hi, welcome to Bakhtari MD. I'm Dr. Jonathan Bakhtari, and today we're going to be talking about myths around allergies. But before I do, let's just talk about allergies in general. And the main allergy I want to talk to you about today is not food allergies or contact allergies from gold or metals, but I want to talk about what's really common, which is hay fever, or as we call it, allergic rhinitis. I think there's a lot of myths and wrong ideas that go around this hay fever idea, and I wanna go through that. But before I do, let me explain to you what hay fever or allergic rhinitis is. Hay fever and allergic rhinitis is a allergy caused by common things in our environment that cause a very well-documented series of symptoms. And, I, and I'm not here to go give you an allergy talk, but runny nose, runny eyes, itchy, back of the mouth, cough and uh, puffy eyes but but those are the classical symptoms but that's not what i really want to talk about i really want to talk about some myths and and things that people don't really understand when it comes to hay fever but before i do let's talk about what hay fever how to, how it occurs well hay fever occurs when something in your environment and we know it's usually it is always a compound made out of carbon meaning something that has to do with living things because living things are made out of carbon. You come into contact with one of those things and that triggers your symptoms. And I'm gonna to talk to you briefly about what that trigger is and how those symptoms come about. But it really, this is not supposed to be really a medical talk about how allergies work, but it helps me make my other point about some of the myths. So what happens is one of these carbon compounds, compounds of life, comes into contact with you inside our mucosa of our mouth and throat uh, and in our body we have ige molecules iges are a type of antibodies and they bind to a, a a cell in your body called a mast cell so the ige molecules bind to these mast cells and inside the mast cells think of them as a a cell full of bombs that are going to release histamine and other immunomodulators that are not going to be fun when this mast cell explodes. So the IgE molecule sits on this mast cell and the IgE molecule binds to very specific things in your environment if you're allergic. So people who are allergic have IgE molecules towards let's say animal dander or dust mite or pollen or ragweed. When those molecules bind to the IgE molecules in your 
nose or mouth or throat. And that IgE molecule is bound to a mast cell. It literally causes the mast cell to explode and release its granules of histamine and other immunomodulators. And then it's the histamine that causes the swelling, the itchiness, and all the symptoms associated with the allergy. Again, to just repeat that, so once the histamine is released, then all the classical symptoms of hay fever begin. So there's you know, a couple of things that you need to know are what are the groups of allergens that can do this. And the way we traditionally classify those allergens, which really is helpful when you're trying to figure out if you have an allergy, is we classify them as seasonal, meaning that they only occur in certain months or seasons, or are they perennial, meaning they're year-round. That's really helpful in trying to figure out even if you have an allergy, because if it's year-round, that certainly rules out a lot of things, and if it's seasonal, that also rules out a lot of things. The other thing that you really want to know about the allergens is if, if it only occurs indoors or if it occurs outdoors or both, but mainly indoors or outdoors because most of the allergens, and I'm just going to rattle off the top ones, are either indoors or outdoors and they're either seasonal or they're not. So the, some of the more common allergens that you see, for example, are tree pollen. Obviously, tree pollen is going to be outdoors, and it's in the early spring. There's grass pollen. Again, that's going to be late spring and summertime. And of course, that is going to be outside. Same thing with ragweed. That's going to be outside, but it's going to be in the fall. Now, pet dander could be year-round, obviously, right? Because the pets are going to be there. And for the most part, they're going to be indoors. But theoretically, you know, you could have that outdoors, but mainly indoors. Dust mites, which is really when you see dust, there's the residue of mites in there, which is an organic compound. Dust itself is not an organic compound, but the mites in them are. And they're year-round. And then, of course, there's indoor and outdoor spores of uh, funguses that can cause symptoms. So when someone comes and says they have an allergy, the first thing you really need to figure out, is it all year round? Is it seasonal? Is it indoors? Is it outdoors? If someone can't answer those questions, if they can't figure out if their symptoms are indoors or outdoors or which one is worse, or they can't figure out if it's seasonal, if they just say, you know, it happens every third Wednesday, that may not be an allergy. So one of the most common themes I've seen in my practice over the many, many years is people who feel or think they may have allergies. And when you question them, they really vacillate on whether you know there's any pattern, whether it happens indoors or outdoors. It happens more one season versus another. And what's interesting is that the people who do have allergies never vacillate. People who, who really are allergic to typical hay fever allergens really know, oh my gosh, you know, as soon as I go inside an air-conditioned building, I feel a lot better. Well, you pretty much know that what they're really talking about is outdoor allergens are making them feel worse. Vice versa, people who are inside a very dusty attic or library or any place where there's a lot of dust, as soon as they go outside, they feel much, much better. And then same thing with uh, people, you know, seasonal, you know, people like, oh my gosh, you know, as soon as the summer comes, my symptoms really act up. So when you're taking someone's history, you know, if they say, well, I'm not really sure it, it kind of comes and goes and can be indoors and outdoors and it could be in different seasons. Yes, I guess it could still be allergies, but it's really, really hard. And 
The other thing is when people are unsure if they're allergic, especially if they're having, you know, symptoms and say, well, I'm not sure what's causing it. And a lot of people who are unsure, yes, there are rare cases of people who just can't figure it out, especially when it comes to hay fever symptoms. But I would say 70, 80% of the time, the patients themselves can make the diagnosis, which really gets to my next thing, which is understanding that if you can't figure out what you're allergic to by your own history, it begs the question whether you actually have allergies. It's possible, but in the majority of time, that's not normal. With what I what I tend to see, and I think my colleagues tend to see, and what the literature says, is most people can real most people with hay fever can readily identify the situations, the seasons, the environments. And all I would say is if someone's struggling to do that, to maybe think about whether it is allergies or whether it might be something else. So let's move on to the next phase, which is if someone feels that they have, again, we're confining our talk to hay fever uh, or allergic rhinitis, you know, what happens to those people if they really are struggling to identify? Well, what happens to they often see an allergist or, or their primary care doctor who orders allergy testing and often in the form of skin testing or blood testing, RAS testing. But what's interesting about that testing, which I think nobody wants to talk about, which is I think if you get nothing else out of this video is this, that, you know, whether 20%, 30%, 10%, 15%, a certain percentage, and it's a big number of those skin tests and RAS tests are falsely positive. And here's the problem. It's not only one test you're getting. Often you're getting a hundred things. So let's just say for the sake of conversation, we say 20% of any allergy test is falsely positive, And we put a hundred things on your back. By definition, you're going to be positive to 20 things. Now, does that mean that information is not useful? Of course it's useful. But when you take those 20 things, you have to go back to the history and say, oh, Mr. Smith, Mrs. Smith, I see here you're allergic to grass. What happens when you roll in grass? What was like when you went to a picnic and you rolled in grass? What happened to you? And if Mrs. Smith said, well, nothing. Well, then that's the false positive. So looking at allergy testing without documenting that that antigen actually causes a problem is pretty much worthless. Are there, you know, rare cases, especially of people with who, who have anaphylactic shock to unknown things in their environment? Of course, but we're talking bread and butter, your 60, 70% of people with allergic rhinitis. There's certainly a place for this level of deep investigative work for people who have serious reactions, uh, unknown reactions that is causing serious reactions. But for the typical hay fever symptom, having skin testing that's not corroborated by actual symptoms can send you down the wrong road, especially if you're offered immunotherapy, which is involves you know get, getting shots three times a week for often three to five years. You want to make sure again, if it's, especially if it's not life threatening, if you just have classic you know, hay fever symptoms. And if you do have classic hay fever symptoms, it probably means you are allergic and you probably have figured out what you're allergic to. Uh, what I have seen, and I think the trouble part is when people don't even have classic symptoms of hay fever, but somehow wind up getting allergy testing and then they 
obviously are going to have some positive things. And then unfortunately, you know, they may be offered immunotherapy or allergy shots. So again, we need to connect the symptoms to what it is the allergy skin tests are telling you you're positive. And if you're seeing a, a great clinician, that's what they're going to do. And they're going to dismiss allergy tests that are positive, but when you are in that environment. When I see somebody whose skin test is positive for dust mites, and I tell them, well, what happens when you go to the attic and clean out the attic? What happens to you? And they're like, well, nothing. Well, I question whether that test is a false, I mean, if it's false positive or not, because especially if the patient is having a lot of symptoms, the, the exposing them to the situation should reproduce. See, allergies don't come and go. If you're truly allergic to ragweed or truly allergic to grass, you will be allergic. If you're allergic to dander, you will be. Now, the one caveat is really children because a high percentage of children outgrow hay fever. But once you're 40, 50, and somebody wants to newly diagnose you with you know, allergic uh, hay fever, yeah, you should, you should be having symptoms when you're around that environment. And I think there is certainly a, a place for skin testing, especially when the reaction is severe and we, you know, we need to not take any chances or when we really just don't know and it's not a common allergen that we can, that the person's been around but it may have occasionally stumbled onto and we really wanna figure out what it is and then go back and say oh wow these are the things that the allergy test shows let's go back to the clinical history and try to match that up because the clinical history not attached to an allergy test almost means nothing right so that that's really important and and i think what i have sensed in in a small percentage of cases where patients feel like the allergy test it's sort of like getting you know a regular blood test for measles or something oh yeah I've, I've been diagnosed with measles or whatever it is not that scientific only because of the high degree of false positivity okay the next thing i want to talk about is allergy medications and how patients take them and some of the pitfalls that go along with them there are two main allergy medications and categories that you know, physicians prescribe. One is the steroid nasal spray, which does an amazing job of preventing some of the allergy symptoms. And again, we're talking about hay fever and allergic rhinitis. And the other major one is uh, antihistamines. Often oral antihistamines are used to block the symptoms. The most common, common, common mistake I see happening with patients is they take the medication when they have symptoms as opposed to preventing symptoms. Because if I told you that the mechanism for all your symptoms involve the allergen binding to the IgE and then literally blowing up your mast cell and releasing histamine, once that histamine is released, you cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube. The histamine's there and the medicines we are giving you are not going to get rid of that. So you have to understand that most allergy medications and the categories that we're talking about are preventative. I often hear patients and friends tell me, oh, hold on, I'm, I'm getting allergy symptoms. L let me go take my allergy medicines. That 
doesn't really work. That's going to prevent your you know exposure that you have two, three days from now from adding to what you're having. But it's not meant to like Tylenol getting rid of a fever. It's not meant to get rid of your symptoms. And I can't tell you how many times I tell someone the same thing and yet they're like, no, no, I'm just going to wait. And part of it is, I think the psychological barrier to taking a medication when you're feeling fine. So imagine you feel perfect, but you're going to go to the medicine cabinet and take your allergy medicines. You know, us as humans, kind of the way we look at medication is if I get the fever, I'll take the Tylenol. And if I get the itchy eyes and the runny nose, I'll take my allergy medicine. That's exactly how it doesn't work. Allergy medicines are one of the few medications that you have to take before you're exposed to the allergen. So if you know you're going to your Aunt Louise house who's got five cats and you're allergic to cats, you take the medication several hours before you go to your aunt's house. Not after you've had dinner, your aunt's house, you're feeling horrible, let me take my allergy medicine. And same thing with seasons. If you know summers are going to be a challenge and you work outdoors and you're allergic to grass or whatever, so maybe right before the summer or in the spring you start your medications and then stop them You know when the winter rolls around. So depending on what you're allergic to and how you're going to be exposed to it. So that's why like if you talk to most aller- allergists, they'll tell you the number one therapy for allergies is avoidance. Avoid it. But if you can't avoid it, then what you really have to do is take these medications before you're exposed to it. Because once you're exposed, the mast cells are going to degranulate and the, and the histamine is going to release or the, the histamine uh, uh, granules are going to de- degranulate and spill all their stuff into your body and your mucosa and you will have symptoms. And literally taking a medication that's supposed to prevent that degranulation after the granulations occurred is sort of self-defeating. So again, a really misnomer. It's probably the one class of medication on life, uh, unlike other medication where we take it. You know, if you have a heartburn, you might take your heartburn medicine like right when you start having symptoms, or you know, you may say take some Pepto-Bismol or whatever. Allergy medicines do not work like that, and it's so so hard to get through. Very very important that you take your allergy medicines before you're exposed to the allergen. A lot of people who are who initially feel they have allergies because they have you know vague symptoms that again don't follow any particular pattern, not worse indoors outdoors, they're not worse any part of the year. It varies when it occurs in terms of time of year. Having an allergy is part of the differential diagnosis, but it's not always the diagnosis. Sometimes these other symptoms which, which sometimes are vague sometimes are you know can be other things like sinusitis and other issues that can cause similar symptoms so but for the people who are not truly allergic and when i say allergic in terms of hay fever i mean don't have ige mediated mast cell degranulation but have some other process i often find that being diagnosed as having an allergy when you don't have one is more acceptable to some patients. It's just easier to tell friends and family, I have allergies, when in fact it's not an allergy. 
based on clinical history and even skin testing. So I think sometimes having an allergy is more socially acceptable than maybe having some more vague things. And so I think it's really, really important that you know you see a great allergist who takes a great clinical history and combines it with the skin or blood testing and make sure that you're properly diagnosed. And if you do have an allergy, then you know obviously treat it correctly. But if the allergist feels like based on the clinical history, it's just not making sense to not reinforce this allergy diagnosis when the clinical history and even the testing doesn't warrant it. And I see a lot of people who somehow somewhere along the line, someone may have mentioned or they have may have may have suggested to a clinician 20 years ago that they might be allergic and they just walk around with that diagnosis. But when you sit down and really get a detailed clinical history and even do skin testing, you find out, no, there's, it's not really allergies, but you know, a whole array of other diagnoses. So it's a very, very common theme that someone somehow got that label somewhere and it gets perpetuated and it actually gets perpetuated in in people's medical records. So one person, you know, get is told by, you know, a friend or a doctor somewhere along the way, or maybe in an ER or an urgent care that this might be allergies. And all of a sudden they carry that diagnosis for the rest of their lives without it actually being confirmed. And that then gets perpetuated in the medical records because when they're seen somewhere else, the, the patient repeats, yes, I have hay fever or I have allergies to to dust or this or that, and it gets perpetuated. Nobody questions it again. So it's really, really important, certainly from a medical person, when they see a person who says they're allergic, to really you know dive deep into that clinical history and the circumstances of how they got diagnosed with allergies before they let the patient walk out and continue feeling like they have allergies as the source of their problem. Uh, this is a lot more common than you see. And part of it is because I think for people who do have a mild form of it, it's a very benign diagnosis. The medications don't have a lot of side effects. And on a lot of busy practices, it's really an easy way to get the patient out of the room who you you know just has some vague symptoms. Well, it might be allergies. Let's try this. And next thing you know, they're on a lifelong course of allergy medicines and given an allergy diagnosis when, in fact, it may be something else. Now, don't get me wrong. There are people with serious allergies, life-threatening allergies that absolutely need to have the diagnosis, have the therapy, and be taken care of by, you know, really expert allergists and and primary care doctors. I'm not referring to those people. I'm referring to sort of the other mild forms of allergies that often when you really get the clinical history, it doesn't even sound like allergies because doesn't follow any of the things you would find in a history. It's not seasonal, it's not year round, it's random, and it's not really indoor, it's not really outdoors, it could be here, there. And then the symptoms are a lot vaguer and the symptoms change and you know whatever they think they're exposed to, they can, you know, sometimes if they think they're around a- uh, animals or it, it will cause the symptoms. And a lot of times they're around animals and it doesn't cause the symptoms. and. Yes, it could be different animals and stuff, but a lot of times there's so many inconsistencies in the story that you have to pause and just say, let's go back. And lastly, this is the other interesting point, is a lot of children have true allergic, you know, IgE-mediated allergies. 
And we know that a high percentage of children outgrow allergies. So what I also have seen is a lot of adults will carry that diagnosis, literally repeat it chart to chart to chart, even when they've outgrown the diagnosis, because we know a high percentage of children's typical you know, hay fever symptoms resolve by the time they become adults. Thank you for listening. You can check out my website, jonathanbakhtarimd.com, to sign up for my newsletter. And you can watch this full episode over on my YouTube channel, BakhtariMD, where you can leave questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes. And take care and be well.